Hello friends and welcome back to It's All Relative, the show that explores life's issues through a generational lens, helping us understand how we are evolving as consumers, workers and citizens. Each episode I shall be tackling a juicy question that I want answered by interviewing experts, voices and practitioners along the way to unravel the complex answer. And today we are addressing the issue of the moment, AI and how it will impact our workplaces. And I can think of no one better to inject some rationality and much needed clarity on this issue than Dr. Lewis Liu. Dr. Lewis Liu founded Eigen Technologies, a research-driven AI company for professional services way back in 2014. It currently has offices in London, Lisbon, and New York. Lewis started his career as a consultant at McKinsey and is a former senior advisor to Linknators. He holds a doctorate in atomic and laser physics from the University of Oxford and during his studies there invented a new class of X-ray laser. The physics behind this invention was later abstracted into Eigen's core technology. Lewis also happens to be the recipient of Harvard's first joint bachelor's in physics and fine arts. Wow, what an impressive CV. Lewis, welcome to It's All Relative. Thank you. It's really great to see you again, Eliza. You too, my love. So that CV, by the way, was generated by ChatGPT. So I hope that it done you justice. Not bad. I want to begin, not bad. I want to begin with your story because it's a fascinating sort of insight into AI technology and AI startups and the AI scene. I wonder if you could take us back to how you came to set up Eigen and what it does for us lay people. Sure, of course. For most people's startup journey, it's, you know, people like to tell a fairly linear story. But in reality, starting up a company, it's really nothing but linear. It's really a mix of different experiences that sort of aggregate and snowball into finally a moment when you start a company. I guess my journey started when I was maybe seven, eight years old. I asked my parents for a video game console, Nintendo or Super Nintendo it was. And being the good Asian American parents that they were, instead of buying me a game console, they bought me a 386 computer and a pile of coding books. And they said, make your own. So I think that's sort of the lifelong journey of love of computers. That's where it started. But moving forward a little bit, the first time I encountered a problem that Eigen is currently solving today was actually the summer between high school and Harvard. That summer, I wanted to play video games. And my parents said to me, Lewis, you're getting a job. And I said, no, I've gone to Harvard. I'm playing video games. And said, no, you're getting a job. So I get a job at a tire distribution center in northern New Jersey, minimum wage, $5 dollars fifty an hour. And the job was data entry. It was to take these piles of invoices and purchase orders and manually insert the data into a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet. And after doing this for one day, I couldn't do it. I had enough. It was so mind-bogglingly boring. And so the next day I came and asked my manager, hey, do you actually have a digital version of these documents? And he said to me, oh, well, yes, we actually printed all these out for you because it will be easier. But yes, there's .txt files for all of these documents. And so in the next couple of days, instead of actually doing the data entry, I wrote, maybe you can call it Eigen version 0.000, but I wrote a C++ program that translated these documents into Excel data sheets. And in the matter of three to five days, I automated myself out of a job, went back to playing video games. So I guess that's <laughs> the first time I came across this problem where data in a business and organization is there, but just inaccessible because it's so deeply unstructured. Fast forward a little bit. So I was actually, as you mentioned, Harvard's first double major 
major in fine arts and physics. And actually, during my undergraduate there, I spent a lot of time trying to build what back then could be called like genetic algorithms or proto AI, trying to actually make interesting art pieces with computer algorithms. So you know, today you have Dali, you have Midjourney, but I was playing around with a lot of these techniques before there was even generative AI. But fast forward a little bit, I was really founded on two, I guess, really serendipitous things, which is that after McKinsey, where I started my career at McKinsey in the height of the financial crisis, we saw a lot of banks really struggling. And there's this great scene in The Big Short. If you haven't seen The Big Short, you should. I love that movie. There's this yeah, fantastic yeah. scene where Dr. Michael Burry, played by Christian Bale, who, by the way, is still the best Batman, in my opinion, crawled on the floor exhausted having read all of these documents. And he finds out that the global economy is going to collapse by reading these documents because guess what? No one else has read these documents. Like, you really get to experience that. That data was just so atrocious, just so inaccessible in these banks when I was working there at McKinsey. And then, as I said, fast forward a little bit, Eigen was founded on two really serendipitous things. Number one, during my PhD at Oxford, I invented a new class of X-ray lasers. It would have taken about 10 years to commercialize that technology. I thought the time's a little bit too long for me. But I realized mathematics could be used for a very interesting sequential pattern matching algorithm. And by the way, remember, this was the days before large language models, etc. So you had to use clever mathematics to look at language. The second serendipitous thing is, long story, but I got myself a point to be a partner-level senior advisor to Linklaters, where I just saw how expensive it was for Cambridge-educated lawyers to go through these documents. So those two worlds came together. Mm-hmm. Eigen was created to transform complex documents into structured usable data. Today, we say that Eigen is a universal translator of data, making data useful by taking that all these reams of documents and making it into a structured database such that you know, companies can use that in a much more formatted way. So almost you're creating a sort of institutional memory. That's right that you can ask, which is phenomenal, really. And you're taking away all of that labor, all of that laborious sort of exercise of going through documents, finding out precedents, finding out test cases, all of that kind of stuff. And that's particularly acute in, say, legal institutions like Linklaters? Well, actually, what's interesting is our first ever production client was actually Goldman Sachs, not the law firms. I think the lawyers today are thinking about how to use AI. But remember, AI is highly disruptive to the legal industry's business model of the hourly billing rates. But if you're looking at a bank or insurance company, which are our core clients, for them, being able to process these documents faster and better and be able to create, as you said, that institutional knowledge doesn't actually disrupt their business model, it is additive to their business model enhances it right so much there so let's go back to your so you had that sort of juxtaposition of those two serendipitous kind of moments you establish eigen and goldman sachs becomes your first customer is that right? That's right. And our first investor as well. So they did our Series A together with uh, Tomasek, the Singaporean Sovereign Wealth Fund. And to what extent do you think one of the major sales, and this may be a naive question, was off the back of the chaos, the mismanagement, the human frailty on show during the 2008 financial crisis? Actually, it was a direct translation. So let me talk a little bit about the exact sort of use case we did for Goldman and actually still continue to do for Goldman today. So in the 2008 financial crisis, right, one of the biggest obvious observations made by regulators was that banks did not have information in their underlying data in their underlying systems, right? In fact, just to put a sort of a controversial spin to it, if you think about it, a financial institution or a bank is nothing more than a pile of contracts 
because that is what a loan is. That is what a derivative is. That is what a pile of contracts and the IT system to support those contracts. In the 2008 financial crisis, no one was reading these contracts. And that ultimately led to the terrible decisions that was made in the 2008 financial crisis. So many people lost their jobs. Trillions of dollars of GDP evaporated. And so the regulators came along and after the financial crisis and said, look, every single bank operating within America must at any given moment, understand the full extent of their financial contracts. So there was a new regulation that was put mm. in place called Dodd-Frank. And under Dodd-Frank, you know, the banks had to comply and actually started reading these contracts. And to your point about human frailty, many of these banks started looking at AI solutions to automate this process and to create a more accurate process. And indeed, that's what we do for Goldman to today. Right. We help Goldman comply with Dodd-Frank. So we analyze all of their derivatives and capital markets documents on an ongoing continuous basis to to help them comply with Dodd-Frank such that if there is a financial crisis, the regulators, the Federal mm-hmm. Reserve, the FDIC can actually get a much better control and handle the situation so 2008 doesn't happen again. Awesome. What I love about that is that brings us to the main topic of focus today, which is, I suppose, I wonder if you could sort of touch upon what you think are the biggest misconceptions around AI and some of the hysteria that we're experiencing and hearing about now. Inject some rationality into that debate, if you will. <laughs> So let's be very clear. Let's talk about GPT for a second. It's probably the most popular thing that everyone has played with. What is GPT? It is nothing more, I'm going to use quotes here, nothing more than a computer program that predicts the next word based on your previous set of words. So in GPT, we call it, you give a prompt, and then within the prompt, it will predict the next set of most possible high probability words, and it spits it out. So a really good example is, let's take a human example. If I say to you, Eliza, hi, how are you? Your Mm -hmm. most natural response would be, I'm fine, thank you, right? Just probability-wise, that is the most common phrase that might spit out of you. And that is exactly what GPT does. So from a pure functionality perspective, that's actually pretty limited, right? It predicts the next words based on previous words. Cut through some of the clutter here is definitely not sentient. I think people are saying, oh my God, AI overlords. It's definitely not sentient. It's just a prediction machine. It's not even close to being intelligent in the way humans define intelligence, which is, I will call it sort of contextual understanding and application. There is no context applied to these generative models. Right. You know, it is a pre-baked model that spits out words based on previous words. In a way, it's just a massive plagiarism machine, right? I think it was a Vice article that called it mansplaining as a service. I think Ted Chan and the FT calls AI just simply applied statistics. I think it's important to just put into context here what it is. It's an algorithm. Again, I'm repeating this again. It is just an algorithm that predicts the next mm. set of words based on previous words. But there's a big but. It is extremely powerful. And actually, the AI industry have been working on these large models for actually quite a long time. So I think that even though AI is such a hot topic today, such in the zeitgeist, the public mind today, in reality, it's more like the Mm -hmm. iPhone moment, where the iPhone fundamentally was more of a product innovation, a user interface innovation, rather than a fundamental technical innovation. Indeed, that's actually what's happened in the AI industry today, is that Google first came out with the large language models. It's called BERT back in 2018-19. Every time you use a Google search, you're using a large language model even before the whole GPT hysteria came out. And actually, there's a Stanford study that showed that the abilities of this AI to process words increases not exponentially, but linearly 
by the size of compute and size of parameters and size of data. So there's no quote-unquote emergent intelligent properties that's even coming out of it. It's just at this moment in time, we have the data, we have the compute that's grown, and we finally have the hats off to the OpenAI guys for creating a genuinely good marketing engine and genuinely good user interface to actually, for the retail user, to play with it. Just a few points there, because I think you're right to highlight the way in which it's user-friendly and we need to understand what it actually is. I mean, you talk about it being similar to the iPhone moment, but the thing about the iPhone was its gradual upgrades, but those were quite slow, right? What are we on? iPhone 12 now? 13? 14? Don't know. People have lost count. This thing generates and expands and upgrades at such pace. And so is the comparison a valid one when you've got ChatGPT just constantly being able to expand and upgrade and its insight and its intelligence at such pace? Let's take that analogy one step further, right? Before the iPhone, there was the Palm Pilot, the BlackBerry, and they were used in fairly niche use cases in the enterprise or like very specific use cases. Same thing could be argued for AI, where the financial services industry have pioneered the use of machine learning AI for decades now. Google have been using BERT, mm-hmm. large language models, for years you know, as a very specific use case there and then exploded. And that's sort of what the iPhone did. It brought the smartphone technology to the common public and ChatGPT brought the large language model AI ability to the public, even though a lot of these use cases have been percolating for a long time. But so your second point about sort of the expansion of AI in sort of exponential way, and the iPhone has been increasing incrementally. I would argue that we're actually seeing a saturation point in AI. A couple of specific salient points here. The first is that there is an argument that 2022 is the last year we're going to have the best possible training data for human-generated content for AI. Because guess what happened after 2022? Everyone's making stuff with AI. So therefore, actually, the training data quality conceivably could be actually getting worse from now on because you're not going to have original human creation. You're just going to have more and more echo chamber of generated AI content. So actually, there's a need, and I'm sure people have done it, to preserve the internet at the state of 2022 to get maximum human creation as a training data set. Wow. So we're talking about 2022 being the pinnacle of human creativity. Yes, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. So there's that point around maybe training data is just going to get worse from now on. That's one peakage point. One of the other reasons why AI, you know, we've been able to do so much with some of these new generative AI models is called parameters, right? We don't have to go into the math about it. Typically, the more parameters, the better. And the more parameters, basically, these are mathematical variables that you need to run a neural network. In order to calculate more parameters, you need more compute. And obviously, there are you know some geopolitical questions around the chip industry. And we're also reaching almost the physical limit of chips. Mm. We don't need to go into quantum physics here, but the virtual transistors are getting smaller and smaller and reaching the quantum limit so that actually there is Moore's law of terms of compute power is going to plateau. And so therefore, the number of parameters that you can calculate is going to plateau as well. So in terms of being able to do bigger and bigger models with better and better training data, we may be already hitting a peak point. So these are some of the intrinsic issues as to why these large fundamental foundation models, the way that we're designing and building them today, 
may be starting to peak. However, that is not to say that AI is not going to be hugely transformative and it's not going to have an exponential impact on business or our lives. The next step is to find more and better applications and uses of these AI models and to refine these AI models for business applications or consumer applications. I think that's the next step. Sort of, it's like electricity took decades to invent. Now we've gotten it to a good state. But just having electricity is not enough. You have to find all the applications of electricity. Right. So in actual fact, let's go back to the analogy with the iPhone. We've got this kind of consumer-facing product of generative AI. Now we need people to invent the apps to tailor it specific challenges, needs, wants, desires of humanity. You know, everyone talks about how generative AI will write blogs and screenplays and do everything for us. But let's then drill down on some of the real world case studies. And let's focus on work and I suppose specifically professional services. Because what you said earlier on about, you know, AI being disrupted to law in a way that it's not to banking. Let's just talk about how you think in the next sort of five to 10 years, these AI applications will really affect people's daily work. I think it's important not to sugarcoat this. I fundamentally believe that we are going to see huge amount of white collar disruption in the coming years. I think this term called the fourth industrial mm-hmm. revolution have been touted about a bit of an old term now. I think originally came out with some of the automation tools like UiPath, et cetera, talk about the fourth industrial revolution, which is the disruption and automation of white collar workers. And I do think that the common mm. availability of AI to put into all of these apps, as you said, is going to genuinely usher the fourth industrial revolution. So let me talk about what that means. Goldman Sachs recently published an article that basically talked about all the jobs that were potentially at risk of being disrupted. And the Google search, is my job going to be automated? You know, is it sort of climbing exponentially? I think that there is a lot of truth to this, but I think it's going to happen in a couple of waves. So the first wave is going to be what the gen AI tools can do today easily. What can they do today? What is it going to disrupt today? It's mostly going to disrupt Mm -hmm. content creation and content editing first. I mean, good example is writing a blog post, doing graphic design. Because remember, going back to fundamentally, what is Gen AI? Gen AI is I take a prompt and I predict the next set of words. So these, I would say, content creation part of the white collar cycle, white collar group is probably going to get disrupted first. On the content creation side, there is obviously social media managers and all the people. But are we talking also journalists? We're talking journalists. There was a recent scandal or situation with The Guardian where some Gen AI tool managed to perfectly recreate a fake article by one of The Guardian journalists. We're talking journalists. Now, by the way, I think there's some deep problems with content creation from a human civilizational perspective by using Gen AI. But let's be honest, we live in a deeply capitalistic society. If one can increase profit by automating journalists and automating content creators, the capitalistic society will do it. So I think that's phase one. I think phase Phase two, and by the way, what I mean by phase one is also these will be sort of individual tasks done by individual people. It just happens to be a lot of these people. I think the second wave will come about where will be more what I'm going to call process workflow. And this is actually where you see, you know, Eigen has actually been playing this space for a long time, just being accelerated now by availability of Gen AI. But for example, banks, insurance companies handle, you know, millions of transactions, billions of emails in a very, very structured 
structured way, right? A very rigid process in which you apply for a mortgage or very rigid process in which an insurance broker syndicates an insurance policy. And because of the rigid process that's required in these highly regulated industries or in these sort of, let's just say, fairly rigid industries, there will need to be purpose-built applications required to make sure that the automation with AI adheres to the process. And so I think that's the next wave because it's not as straightforward as write me a blog post. You need to adhere to industry-specific processes and domain expertise. And I think that's going to be probably the second wave. This has actually been happening for years now. But Mm. I would say that because enterprises and businesses, especially large enterprises, move at a slower pace, effectively, you can say that and the enterprise transformation has already been happening over the last couple of years, while the individual human content creator is going to be disrupted faster, right? It's basically caught up now with the enterprise. PwC is already starting to spend a billion pounds on trying to basically replace low-skilled administrative jobs, right, with generative AI. And so what, that could take five years or we're talking two? I would say it would probably take five years, not two. And the reason why I say this is that within large enterprises, process is a very important point. If you don't have process, you don't have control over your business. There's employment contracts. And actually, in the banking world, there's actually specific regulations pertaining to how you use AI in different situations. It's called model risk management in the banking world. So even though you have the technology to do it today, you would still need to undergo a process change and an organizational change in order to actually implement this technology. So I would say that content creators, some of the more individual tasks being disrupted right now today, in fact, we're seeing the writer's strike happening in Hollywood. Part of it is about pay. Uh, The other part is actually about automation. And we're seeing that happening today. But I think to change enterprises wholesale, that will take years. And I'm fixating on timeframes because there's so much sort of hysteria around this is all happening now, this will all happen tomorrow. So in terms of, is there any third stage, by the way, fourth industrial revolution? Stage one, stage two, to me, is very obvious. I think stage three is truly going to depend on what direction as an AI industry and as a society we decide to take. And I can see two directions. One is a bit darker than the other. I think let's just start with the positive one first. I'm a big Star Trek fan. In the Star Trek universe, humanity is at peace with itself. It has no want. No one's hungry. No one's starving. Everyone has any material need that they want because AI, Mm -hmm. automation have basically just taking care of everything. So humans can pursue what they want to pursue, art, exploration, music, science. And with the AI utopiaists that talk about this, I think it is possible. Like if you look at the technologies that we're working on today, if you combine things like nuclear fusion, which helps save the climate, with things like 3D printing, with AI, these kind of really transformative technologies with the right policies we get maybe towards that Star Trek world. But I'm a little bit more pessimistic than that. Utopia. What's dystopia? Go. I have three major concerns with the way our industry, I mean, the AI industry is headed towards. One is around IP and human creation. Number two is the echo chamber and a dystopia created by the echo chamber. And number three is regulatory capture and inequality. And let me sort of step through each of these. And you can see once I go through each of these, if you take that to a logical conclusion, you're going to reach a pretty bleak world. So the first is around IP creation, right? So it is my belief that 
one of the fundamental principles of Western civilization is property, the protection of individual property. And you know, you extend that, of course, to intellectual property. But today, in the world of GPT and Midjourney, you can say, hey, write me a script that of a Disney Frozen in style of Quentin Tarantino. And it will dutifully do that. And when it creates that script, and by the way, OpenAI is making money off of the creation of this script. It's charging you some some subscription fee. Who owns that script? How would you attribute that? And in fact, back to the writer's strike. I mentioned part of the writer's strike is about my brother-in-law is in the film industry. And he's telling me part of the writer's strike is about pay. The other part is about the fact that, hey, look, we have contributed to the creation of this AI that is now going to automate us. What is the point of writing anymore? The human desire to create something that lasts is mm. not to be assumed, but to create something unique, I think is at risk if we do not protect the IP of the creators. And right now we're seeing this is being trampled on. That's a really good point. But then if you fuse that with the thing you said earlier, which is actually human creativity post chat GPT is always going to be a fusion now with AI anyway. To what extent is the intellectual property uniquely human anymore? You're absolutely right. But the AI itself stands on the shoulders of all the humans. But my point is that it is true. In the future, human creation is going to be a fusion of AI and human. Already is. I mean, those writers, by the way, are writing for the algorithm to a certain extent already. I mean, all of us are enslaved to the algorithm. Our human creativity, whether it's creating a podcast or whether it's writing an article or whether it's even writing a novel, our creativity isn't pure anymore. And I think if we think like that, you're starting from the wrong point in the first place. So there's a difference between optimizing for SEO, in which you say, I need to make sure to have these buzzwords and this stuff, and it gives you Mm -hmm. a scaffold or set of parameters on which you have to create. Versus the AI just creating for you. And in many cases, I mean, we saw that legal case, right? Where they just take the AI creation and just submit it. And that AI creation is based on other human creation. And I guess the question is, is that if I'm a writer and some AI plagiarizes me, I don't think I would care if the AI plagiarizes me if I get some credit for it. But I think it's great that there's a technology that AI can create content. But I think it's not cool that it's not being attributed. We need to somehow move from a Napster movement where everything is free and nothing's attributed and no one's getting credit to a Spotify moment where at least you can start attributing, doing partial attributions to people who've contributed to the overall experience. Human creativity and IP, that's point number one. Point number two is just as social media has been a threat to Western democracy, we saw that with Brexit vote, we saw that with the various elections in the U.S., AI is going to make this echo chamber even worse. And let me give a really concrete example. We talk a lot about, is Google search doomed? And a Google search, I have some deep problems with the echo chamberness of Google search, which is true. But at the very least with Google search, as a user, you are still going to the original source and you are still having to do a bit of thinking for yourself in terms of synthesizing what answer you're trying to get out of the internet. And the prospect of not even going to original source and just having this AI generate something for you, giving you the answer, to me is really scary because it basically disables our ability to actually question and think for ourselves. If we just take the AI output as gospel, which by the way, we're seeing people do already. Humans aren't lazy creatures in general, right? So if you don't have to go to the original source, you are not going to. You're going to create like faster and faster timelines and deadlines, and that's going to create deeper and deeper echo chambers. And so that's my second, I guess, dystopian concern is that we're going to take what is already deeply problematic around the social media echo chamber 
and just accelerate that to a point where, as humans, we're not even in control of it. And it's interesting when you mix that with human creativity, with human laziness, you get deep fakes and a real challenge to democratic conversation and interaction. And I think you're absolutely right that the echo chambers and all of the problems that we've seen in the last 10 years will just be exacerbated by AI. Okay, so that's number two. And number three is combination of what I call regulatory capture and wealth inequality. They're related. I have a deep problem with the way that likes of Sam Altman, I think, are behaving, I would say, quite hypocritically in their engagement with regulators in the government. So there's a Time article that was just published a couple of days ago that was actually saying, even though on one hand, Sam Altman was saying there needs to be more regulation. In fact, he actually lobbied to water down the EU regulation AI. And furthermore, a certain cohort of the generative AI leadership is saying how on one hand, this is dangerous for humanity. There's going to be a Terminator Skynet moment. On the other hand, they're continually pumping more data and more parameters and building bigger and bigger models. Like, what is true? Is it true that this is dangerous? Or is it true that you're just creating bigger and bigger models? And I think furthermore, if you look at what they are saying, they're asking the government to create some kind of licensing regime so that only the select few players can actually use generative AI technology. And so this is, again, you know, squashing innovation in the open source community, trying to create regulatory capture with top three or four companies. And if there is not enough competition in the AI world, that is going to create, you know, a wealth inequality problem that we have never seen before. If AI is used incorrectly already, it's going to transfer wealth from the people who lose jobs to those who make AI. I think that's a natural consequence. If we are saying, well, okay, you cannot, but only the top three or four companies are allowed to use AI because of regulation, that is going to even further exacerbate wealth inequality. So I think that back to the three things, right? One is around IP and human creation. Number two is around the translation from social media echo chamber to AI echo chamber. And number three is regulatory capture leading to even significantly greater wealth inequality. So that doesn't sound great. That's not really a society in which I want to raise my children. But what's interesting is you located that in the West. And of course, you didn't mention what's going on in China. And I wondered if you wanted to comment on whether you thought that those three things would look very different or similar in a autocratic communist regime. I think it'll actually look very similar, just the players will be a little bit different. In China, the government owns the data. So you know, just sort of replace top three tech companies with the government and you basically get the same mm-hmm. result. I think that there's actually a convergence, if you will, of the oligarchy of the big tech companies and their control over our society with the autocratic regime. I think there's actually some disturbingly similar parallels between the two. So I actually think that we'll probably end up with a very similar situation. Wow. What's your thoughts then on Rishi Sunak's rather optimistic hope that the UK is almost well placed to be equally a leader in AI and a leader in AI regulation? Do you think he's being somewhat naive on that front? I think the UK has a really good opportunity. I think in order to be a leader in this world, both from a regulatory perspective and from a called application development technology perspective, you need to have talent, which the UK does. It has some of the top universities in the world around AI. It needs to have political will. Maybe it does. Seems like maybe Rishi Sunak wants to do this. And it needs to have economic power, which it does not. The third component, which is around economic power and influence, you know, obviously Brexit has taken a big dent out of that. You know, the FTSE 
100 continues to be an embarrassment, Western capital markets. So I think that if Britain, we want to become that leader, we really also need to think about creating an economic environment that is able to have the power to be able to actually create that market presence. It's all great that you have people, you have political power, but you know all your companies are second tier. No one's going to listen to you. I think that's a third leg of the stool. So let's then just locate this discussion back into the workplace. And just, I wonder if we, therefore, given this first stage, second stage, and potential third stage revolution that's going to happen, what do businesses, and I'm thinking businesses, employees, need to be doing sort of short, medium, long term? For example, how do we manage people that manage AI? Do we need a chief ethics officer to teach people and ensure that the company can overrule the machines. What does that restructuring, that thinking look like for a business? I'll start on a tactical level and move more macro. So on a tactical level, I think that actually it's useful to look at banking industry because they've been working with machine learning, call it like non-deterministic algorithms for a very long mm-hmm. time. You know, you call it chief ethics officer. In the banking world, they call it the chief model risk management officer. And in the banking world, chief model risk management officer, bit of a mouthful. But what they do, what this role does is it looks at all of the machine learning models, all the AI models that the bank has built that leads to certain decisions or lead to certain data assets and make sure that it is free from bias, make sure that it is repeatable, make sure that it is accurate and make sure that the production process when you're in production has enough human eyes on it. And then sometimes they get into trouble, right? But more or less, this has worked reasonably well for decades now. So actually, you know, very tactically, I think that it would be useful for other industries to look at the financial services industry and see what they've done. So on a very tactical level, I would say that. On a more macro level, I do think that putting a slightly Marxist lens on this from an intellectual perspective. We're at a crossroads where it used to be that there is you know, somewhat of a balance between labor and capital, whereby labor you know, has a certain negotiating power, you know, mm-hmm. and then you deploy capital to you know, hire labor, get things done. I think we are transitioning to a world where because of the fourth, you know, we're calling the fourth industrial revolution, industrial revolution is all about the amplification of capital, and especially the fourth industrial revolution of white collar workers. I think those who are able to deploy capital on AI are going to be able to have a significantly greater negotiating position versus labor. When I think about how do companies think, how do employees think, I think we're going to see a pretty deep tension that's going to happen because, you know, as a company, you think about the deployment of capital as it relates to the hiring of labor. As an employee, you're in a position of labor. And I think as companies, it is our duty to make sure that this deployment of capital is right to our workers, but we also have a duty to our shareholders to do things like reduce costs. My advice to a company would be obviously to look at all of the enterprise AI tools that are out there to see how you can drive efficiency, drive scalability in your processes. Take a couple of learnings from the banking industry on how to make sure you deploy AI safely, effectively, scalably. And I think the advice I would give to an employee or to individual workers would be to just start playing with AI. Just start getting used to it and understand. You know, I would almost like write a journal, play with GPT, play with MidJourney, and explore the limits of the technology. These are the things I used to do that the AI is going to replace. And by the way, like I should be the ones that actually own the AI process. 
know, treat the AI as like a junior employee that's have taken away this piece of my job. And then write down the list of things that the AI cannot do, but only I can do and find a way of adding greater value than those items. That's so clever. That's so true. I think one of the things, I mean, going back to the Marxist analysis, I think is really important because one of the things that Marx didn't account for is the idea that the worker would have to pay for his or her own training. The assumption was, right, that the training would happen within the business. And I suppose one of the great questions of our age, as we've sent more and more people to university and got them to pay for it, and therefore the preface being we pay for our own training, where does, and I think this is the key question that governments are going to have to grapple with, businesses are going to have to grapple with, and individuals are going to have to grapple with, where does the responsibility lie on that upskilling? And who's going to pay for it, right? Is it going to be the government? Probably no. They're well on their way to saddling all those kids with all that debt in their early 20s. Does it lie with the individual? Well, increasing the younger generations can't really afford to be constantly upskilling throughout their lives, particularly if they're saddled with debt from their first degree. So the onus has to fall on businesses. If you look back in history at the third industrial revolution and the deindustrialization that happened in the West, there was no upskilling done of the workers. They were just all laid off. And so actually history would teach you that the desire to do that isn't amongst capital, isn't within businesses. So that's my real worry. That's my sort of question. Who's responsible for this education, this upskilling? Really great question. I think there's one difference now, which is that, by the way, overall, I agree with you. I would say maybe there's one sliver of light here, which is that most of these AI companies like Eigen, we are venture backed. And so we are rewarded as AI businesses on growth first versus profitability second. And I think that's still the case. At Eigen, we have extensive training programs for our businesses, for their employees to use Eigen because it is in our benefit for more people to know how to use Eigen. So they teach other more people to use Eigen. So we have more usage. So more people use Eigen. So I would say that I think the one difference here might be that the AI companies themselves have an incentive to actually Mm -hmm. upskill workers to use AI so that they generate more revenue, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is probably one nuance here. And you often see you know, a lot of enterprise or B2B AI companies host free boot camps or training sessions on using AI. I think that's probably one difference here insofar as because we as venture-backed companies are rewarded for growth more than profitability, we are incentivized to train people. Therefore, you know, Eigen University may not be far off. <laughs> Okay, so that leads me to my final question really is, we're both parents of Generation Alpha, those born after 2010, who are now becoming known as Generation AI for obvious reasons. They're going to be most exposed to this technology. What do you think we need to be teaching our children, maybe as parents, maybe as educators, maybe as future employees, so that they can thrive in this world? One thing I'm definitely not going to encourage my son to do is be a journalist. And actually, that's a really important point, right? Parents need to understand how the world of work is changing and is going to change even more significantly for their kids so they don't actually give them really bad career advice. But what do you think? we should be thinking about when it comes to our kids, that next generation. I'm really struggling with this question. I have two boys, one four and one five. Obviously, they're learning math, reading, all the 
standard stuff. But I think the thing that I am really trying to focus on, there are two things I'm really trying to focus on. One is around creativity and two is around human connection. Because it doesn't matter if you are in the Star Trek utopia world or you are in this dystopian where big capitalist companies have taken everything. In either world, the ability to think perpendicularly to the status quo will give you a massive advantage and the ability to make that human connection in order to move up start a business, sell your art, whatever it is. Mm. I think understanding human connection and being able to execute on human connection and being able to be ultra creative, those are skills I think that will be universally acknowledged. And I think the hard skills, I think we'll see what happens to that from an automation perspective. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Lewis. Thank you so much for your insight. Creativity, your, I suppose, part optimism, part <laughs> cynicism about our future. Thank you. I'll put a link to Eigen and Lewis in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to It's All Relative. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And why not subscribe to my weekly newsletter to hear more from me about how we are changing as consumers, workers and as citizens. Oh, and do rate us on Apple Reviews. It helps me keep this podcast going. <laughs>